Welcome back, everybody, to the Anagram Journey Podcast with the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and joining us today for part two of the Anagram in Education is Anagram 9, Billy Shuey. We're going to open the show talking about developing our repressed center, then big chunk of today's episode is discussing how to best communicate with your kids' teachers. It's probably about that time for that third quarter parent-teacher meeting. So before you head in, give this episode a listen. Share it with your friends. Share it with the other parents that you know. They talk about the difference between progress and the process, uh, responding versus reacting. And as you know, Suzanne thinks that there are more Enneagram 6s than other numbers. And I like this quote that they share, every child needs an advocate and you cannot be a good advocate for your child if you don't trust yourself. Two quick things to promote today before we get to the show. If all this repressed center talk and orientation to time talk and stance talk really has you geared up to learn some more about it, come and join Suzanne March 13th and 14th in Austin, Texas for a two-day Enneagram and Stances workshop. Austin is just one of the best cities in the world, and this is definitely one of the best workshops that you can attend involving the Enneagram. We also are doing all this talk about uh, relationships and the different Enneagram numbers and relationships with your kids and your teachers and teachers to administration and, and, and. The promotion is for the Path Between Us study guide. If you haven't gone through that yet, grab some friends, grab some family, grab the neighborhood, whatever, start a path between a small group. The study guide, it's broken into six different sessions and it is incredible. You learn so much from the other people in the group about other people in your life. And from now until March 12th, you can get a study guide at lifeinthetrinityministry.com for $5. So grab a handful and start your own group and then be sure to take some pictures and share it with the world. Again, for a study guide to sign up and register for Enneagram Stances in Austin, visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com. Keep sending us in your questions and comments at theenneagramjourney.org. Now on to Suzanne and Billy. That would be so hard for me if I were the teacher. So can we flip this now? What was the phrase uh, that you said earlier that I love so much? Your area for improvement, for improvement, or something like that. Uh, to uh, to compensate to, for their areas of yeah, improvement. Yes. Uh, so that other <laughs> teachers don't have to compensate as much. What are some struggles that each stance has on the teaching side, and ways to improve that? I think it, just a simplistic answer is just to acknowledge your repressed center. I mean, I know that's that can be considered a standard answer, but I think there's a lot of value in that, right? Like if, if I'm a nine and I'm a teacher, um, and I'm constantly living with the idea that my presence doesn't matter, then I might skirt some important areas of my job thinking, eh, that doesn't really matter as much. I'm just going to kind of go on to the next thing. Um, well, no, like it all matters when you're dealing with with, with kids and, and in your profession. And so understanding that you've got to bring up areas like prioritizing and planning and being proactive in order to productively do because the doing involves the education of kids. Right. Well, and you have to do it all and you have to model it. You have to model doing for the kids. Right. And I'm going to take us a little level deeper and suggest that because there's so much doing, like the scenario you described earlier about the cafeteria and teachers in there that didn't get a break that day at lunch. There's so much doing that's required that I think there's a good chance, if you're unaware, that what happens is teachers in the withdrawing stance start the day in healthy space, and then they gradually throughout the day are so burdened by all the things that have to be done that they end up in average space or maybe the top of unhealthy space by the end of the day. And that's cyclical then. It starts again the next day and the next day. And I think the, the more you're aware of that, the more you learn the value of 
later is not a point in time, and this has to be done. For all three of those numbers, if I just do it right now, then I'm saving myself from focusing on whatever is right in front of me or whatever I'd like to do or the thing that I can do the fastest and check it off right? instead of the whole picture of what a day requires from me. Right. One of the workshops that I benefited the most from in my life was your CD set is the, what I had at the time. Now I've got it on MP3 from life in the com on how to develop your press center right. feeling. One of the, the biggest pieces that I started working with first was acknowledging other people's feelings. And that was an easy one for me to start with. That way it wasn't so foreign. It made a lot of sense to me. Right. And I understand how that works for feeling. How does that work for the other two stances? It's a little bit different in each stance. So uh, for threes, sevens, and eights, you don't keep feelings on board. So you have to make a decision to acknowledge other people's feelings. And then once you do, you have to make it one trillion more times in your life. But you learn that pattern, so it becomes part of the pattern. What happens in the withdrawing stance in terms of doing is that you have to have lists. It's best if you do the thing that you want to do the least first, and you have to measure energy output. And you intuitively do it, but generally uh, measuring energy output for uh, nines and fives in particular and emotional output for fours, measuring that doesn't usually become a part of prioritizing. And until you make input and what it's going to cost you part of prioritizing, there's a disconnect that you can never understand until you've named it. And once you've named it, and you're able to know how long things are going to take and how much energy they're going to require, then you can choose whether or not you want to really live the priority or cheat yourself, I think. In terms of bringing up thinking, honestly, the ucky is just saying a hundred times a day and that I'm prone to hyperbole, but that isn't hyperbole. What do I think? What do I think? What do I think? What do I think about this? What do I think about this kid? What do I think about what should be done next? And, and along with what am I thinking? Because where I get in trouble is if there is a relationship disconnect anywhere in my life, then that is a tape that's running in the back no matter what I'm doing, no matter what I'm doing. And a tape that's running for ones is the voice. It's, it's, it, it's on loop. You're not a good teacher. You're not doing the right thing, right? And for sixes, it's I don't know if this is right or not. So for us, it's not a decision about other people. It's a decision about how am I going to lead myself based on what's happening in my head. Okay, I've got another question about the other stances again. You said when we were talking about the aggressive stance, and you said you have to make a decision to acknowledge others' feelings, and then you have to make that decision again a trillion more times. Immediately what I thought of for me is, and then when I acknowledge their feelings, for me not to have thoughts about their feelings. Right. And then I think for eights and threes, but not then to do based on their feelings. Right. Is that the same for the other stances? So yes. is it for for you as a two when you acknowledge somebody else's thinking? When I, or when I think. Yeah. For us, it's... Not to then have feelings about mm-hmm. those thoughts. Yeah. So for me, for us, it's about acknowledging that we are capable of thinking things through without verbalizing it and without acting on what we're thinking. So it's a whole long process that we generally shortcut 
to make ourselves feel better or to make somebody else feel better. And what I have to do is bring up thinking and then not run through every kid in the room to see if that's going to hurt anybody's feelings. I need to do the next right thing based on my own thinking. And that's true for the whole stance. All I have to do is the next right thing and then bring up thinking again and do the next right thing. I, I love that saying because that's I can speak on behalf, I think, for the withdrawing stance. When it comes time to do and, and, those, and fours, fives, and nines consciously make a decision to go ahead and do, thinking about who might be upset by the action, wondering if the relationship is going to be okay because of that action are things that you can't worry about once you've made a choice to do. And then you have to do it again. It's, it's what I love. It. Do the next right thing and don't worry. Don't worry. Don't think, don't feel, try not to just right. do it. Because if you've gotten to that place, you've made a conscious decision. You've, you've given it lots of thought. You've considered other people's feelings because mm-hmm. that matters to you. Now the, now the next step is to just do, and then you have to do it again and then again and then again without having, without worrying or backtracking. Um, because I, you, you said this earlier and it made me think too, fours, fives and nines, we're kind of measuring our energy output or we have a, a little bit of it to begin with. It's really easy for me to just walk away from something I know I should do in the name of preserving my energy or right. avoiding conflict. Even when I think it's the wrong thing, it's still pretty easy to do. And I would imagine that's the case for all numbers, whatever their repressed center is. But once you muster it up and you get there, if you push yourself to do it, then you're on the right path. Absolutely. And and I think uh, do doing the next right thing is sometimes followed by the word now. I need to do the next right thing now. And I think for fours, fives, and nines in that withdrawing stance, there's a tendency a couple of hours in to the list for the day that's been prioritized to just want to reprioritize the list and change that. And I would say uh, withdrawing numbers, be mindful of how much it energizes you to be able to check things off the list that have been completed. And I would say to three, sevens, and eights, be mindful of the moments when you do consider other people's feelings, how little it costs you, as opposed to how much it can cost you. And to ones, twos, and sixes, uh, you're going to have to trust your thinking the first go-round. You don't have time to think it and rethink it and rethink it. And so you can change your mind later. You can change your mind later. And, Billy, if you, in the withdrawing stance, do a priority list, you can change it if you need to. Like, none of this is, right? For three sevens and eights, interestingly enough, in the mystical wisdom of the Enneagram, for three sevens and eights, the feelings have to happen right now. And that's okay, because they're always moving so fast, why not have it happen right now? And for three sevens and eights, don't let her fool you. That was quite the undersell. It it does cost a lot. Those feelings are naughty. Those aren't cheap. Okay. okay, well, now that we're just chatting, I want to ask you a question just so I can learn in this moment. <clears throat> when you make a decision to consider somebody else's feelings, like when you're doing that, which I see you do all the time, what's the process and what does it cost you? Is it a thinking process or are you reacting to to emotions in somebody else. I think the best metaphor is it's like being stuck in traffic. Can't move on. Got to deal with we, we are right here. And it, but it's making the decision to choose to be stuck in traffic. God, that's so good. Yeah. Seven feelings, decision to be stuck in traffic. All right. Do you make a reminder okay. on it, your questions? Yeah. Sorry. All right. So this question, I like it a lot. And I'm going to ask her specific one, but I'd like for you all to do each number and we can start. She is an eight. So we can start with eights and whip it around the horn as an eight mom. How do I best communicate my concerns with teachers without looking crazy? And I've heard just so you know, I've heard some stories of eight moms from, from them 
some in a bragging sense here at the Mike Center about how they've dealt with schools and teachers and administration. And so if we can, you know, y'all have both been on that side, on the school side, on the teacher side, mm-hmm. on the admin side, and you know about the Enneagram. So what is the best way for each number to communicate? Billy, I think I'd love to hear you talk about that because you're married to an eight and you're a nine. So as parents, you all have almost opposite ways about how you would deal with the school. And then I'll throw in a thought or two. Sure. I To begin with eights, um, this is some language that I took from Joey. And as an eight, she says... It's best to respond rather than react. Yep. The difference is when a response comes after some thought, right? Joey talks about all the time how she can um, shoot first and aim second. Yep. And because eights are so quick to process, are usually right, have the energy and the confidence to state their case it sometimes feels or can often, quite frankly, depending upon the aid and the interaction, like the other person feels attacked or threatened in some way. And um, so the first thing I would say is when dealing with, you know, a teacher, if you're a parent as an eight, respond rather than react. It comes after some thinking. And um, there is a lot of value in considering the delivery of the message as equally as important as the content Mm -hmm. of the message, Mm -hmm. because your content is usually sound. You have a point. It comes after facts and logic and reasoning, but the other person having not, they're not going to, they're not going to hear that as clearly as you're stating it because of the manner in which it's being delivered. If you're angry and you're, you know, spewing that anger at mm-hmm. that person that should be considered. Yeah. And I think, um, I think eights have to kind of check their passion at the door when they're going to talk about their child. Cause there's enough feeling around that, that, that you don't need more. You don't need that to be exacerbated. Every parent comes in with all those feelings about their child. And I think it's good to remember that the teacher knows your child far better than you know the teacher, number one. And secondly, I think um, the teacher often knows a different representation of your child than you do. So I think eights might want to go in with the things they want to say and say them responsibly. But then I think they also would be wise to go in with some planned questions so that they're starting a conversation instead of aiming and firing at a teacher who they don't think is doing things right, perhaps. And the last thing I would say is be very clear. This for every number. Unless it's your number, that teacher's not going to do things the way you would do them. Well said. Okay. Nines. I think for nines, it is important to recognize that your presence as your child's parent matters and then operate accordingly. So what I mean by that is, I'm constantly checking grades, asking questions, reviewing the blue card behavior chart, looking at the planner, what's going on, reading all of the weekly emails, those kinds of things. So I'm staying involved. And then when I recognize a problem, um, I immediately start with some nine stuff. Think, thinking about it, wondering about it, taking the, uh, taking all sides, viewpoints and considering those. Um, and then, um, from that operating under the normal guise of, well, it, it, does that really matter that much? And do I want to take a stance here? Yes. Maybe no. I don't know. There, your kid only has 
you as a parent right. or who, however many parents the child has. And what I mean, so if you're a nine, you have to get to a place where you decide that action is absolutely necessary and only necessary by you. Because what ends up happening is when you do have that interaction with the teacher, I think nines, you might surprise yourself in how able you are to have that conversation because you are considering not only your kid's perspective and your perspective, but the teacher's perspective. And that will come out in that conversation and your teacher will greatly appreciate that. So it opens up a really direct and honest and maybe even welcoming line of communication that ultimately benefits the child. But if you don't make the decision to stand up and start the conversation, then you might not get there. Uh, absolutely. And I would only add to that, that I think for nines, it's real important to, to uh, start conversations with what would you suggest? So that the teacher gives you more information than you currently have based on what they would suggest. And then you get to respond to that rather than coming in with, I'm not sure what we should do. I, you know, you, you're as a nine, you're in a better position to respond than to make suggestions. Ones. I would just start by saying, you know, they are, if you're a one, you are going to have to stop the whole thing of, I'm not a good parent. This is about me. I should have known this. I should have seen this. I should have done this differently. The reason I'm being called up here and other parents aren't is because I'm not a good parent. You have to stop all of that before you can represent your child and before you can be in a conversation with the teacher. So whatever you do to calm the voices, you need to do that in the car before you go in so that it's just you and not your critic going to talk to a teacher. And I think you, you have to be very mindful, this is literal for me, that you cross the threshold into the classroom or the area where you're meeting the teacher, and you literally say, I hope you've named your voices, and you literally say, Fred, you need to stay here. Otherwise, you're having conversations that the teacher can't hear during the meeting, and it's very ineffective. Yeah, I would add also that um, being aware of the value of non-dualistic thinking is very, um, very important because there are lots of different ways to effectively educate kids. And I think, you know, it, we all have our opinion on what we feel like is best. But, you know, if you if you've got an effective teacher who's working really hard to educate your kiddo and it doesn't necessarily gel with the way that you would do it, not allowing that other perspective into the conversation might ultimately do a disservice to your own kiddo, which nobody wants to do. Right. Right. And I think uh, along with that non-duality, be open. You know, it's very difficult for ones to be open to creativity because it's not proven yet. And so to mention something we talked a bit about earlier, in this century, there are a lot of new ways to educate kids. And those should be respected and honored until it's proven that they don't work. Because for darn sure, the old ways do not work because of technology. Sure. They don't work. And so you, it, you have to accept that first. <laughs> Why is my kid still using an abacus? <laughs> <laughs> Or why isn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This yeah. is what worked for me. This is what we did when we we're in school. Um, all right, um, twos. Why don't you go first? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll be short here. I think that um, it would be important for a two to remember to try not to carry the feelings of your kid as much as you are wont to do. So if a, your child comes home and they feel a certain way or they think a certain thing or they have an opinion about something that happened at school, it's very easy for the two to jump right into those feelings and then go represent yourself and your kiddo to those that are in the school in that way, as opposed to maybe stopping for a second and, and kind of discerning and filtering through all of that 
in order to get to what you ultimately as the parent decide for yourself, think for yourself, feel for yourself. Um, and you'll be operating in a much better space. I think when advocating for your child, I agree with that. And I'm going to just guarantee you that a very high percentage of twos already had the conversation with the teacher in the car, imaginary conversation on the way to the school. By the time a two arrives, they already made up. They think they know what the problem is. They've already had the conversation in the conversation. That's pretend they got a little bit whipped up and half the time it's not about that. And then you get there and then everything's a surprise. So twos, you got to really watch that made up conversations. That's, that's not likely it. And I've done it over and over and over. And then when the teacher said, well, this is why I want to talk to you. I'm caught totally off guard because that wasn't what I thought we were going to talk about. Yeah. And I think that's a form of twos being manipulated sometimes to themselves and sometimes allowing others to do that to them. Kiddos can come home and they can pick up the fact that you're you're feeling their feelings and they can kind of mold that in, yeah. in order to get whatever what they, they want. want it to be. And that imaginary conversation on the way there is yeah. a two sort of self manipulating for whatever sure. reason, as sure. opposed to just taking a step back and viewing everything logically and saying, all right, here's how we're going to do this. But you have to be able to kind of get there on your own within. before. Well, and you, you have to wait until it happens, right? To are when I'm way out in the future, None of that ever happens. <laughs> and so you're caught, you're, you're at a loss. The other thing I want to cut to is a little slack is when you're talking to the teacher, be mindful that you have to separate your child's feelings and your feelings and the feelings of the teacher, which you're picking up mm-hmm. and be mindful that you always think everything is your fault. Otherwise you can't represent your child. Well, if the teacher is indeed not doing things fairly or appropriately. Good point. Because, you know, there's a chance that both nines and twos will kind of go along with whatever the teacher says and not take good care of the kid. Like, it's a right. it's it's a thing. Sure. All right. Threes. I think it's important for threes as parents to... Um, to recognize the fact that if you don't have a three as a kiddo, or if your kiddo's teacher isn't a three, that they don't think and operate like you do. And so they might process a little slower. They might not um, be so goal and task and achievement oriented. And um, your their views on feelings might, might not be the same. So I think a lot of times threes as parents encourage maybe consciously or subconsciously the suppression of those feelings as they come up because they block efficiency. Um, and that's you thinking though that way and maybe subconsciously passing that message along to your kiddo and teachers are going to make mistakes and kids are going to make mistakes. That's part of, that's part of growing up. And I think allowing that to be just a part of the process so that they ultimately can be successful, which is important, is 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 key. I agree with that, and I would just add that I think the big temptation is comparison. So threes, don't compare your child to other children, and don't ask the teacher things like, well, how are the other children doing with this assignment, or... Uh, how is this affecting other kids? Don't compare because all comparison, all of it leads to competition. And the thing you will have to watch out for as a parent is using as a standard how your child's doing as compared to other children. And then intuitively encouraging them to compete not, not even knowing you're doing it. Yeah. So I think you say to yourself on the way in to the meeting, I'm here to talk about my child. And what's happening with other children is none of my business. And then hold to that. I think one more thing I want to add, too, is that 
twos and threes have the gift of building capacity in others. You're just naturally good at it. And that's important to note that you have the ability as a three parent to be really good at um, helping your child meet their potential. You just, you think quickly, mm-hmm. you, you're moving forward quickly, you, you think efficiently. And I think it is possible that in that conversation with your child's teacher, because you're good at that, to be able to find a way to connect with that teacher in order to maybe, maybe even build capacity in the teacher, but more importantly, to work together to build capacity in your kid, them as the teacher, you as the parent, but all of you together as like this three pronged stool to, to, to help. I want to add something to that. And and then I know we need to move on, but the thing I want to add uh, also in is a little bit about ones. I think one of the things three parents have to be mindful of is they are proponents for taking shortcuts. And when you add that to your child's routine, that's problematic. And I think one parents to go back just because of this moment have to be mindful that they think it's never okay to take a shortcut. And sometimes it is okay. So check yourself with the teacher about process and not just about progress. And there's a tendency when we're, when parents are talking to teachers to just want to talk about progress and not process. Okay. um, Fours mindful that you're the most complex number on the Enneagram. Remember that two things are going to happen when you go to a meeting with your child's teacher. And the first is that you're taking all of the complexity that is you and you're bringing that with you and your tendency to manage that is to follow what other people have told you, which is either that you're too much or that you're not enough. So your stance for going into the meeting will be that you've chosen one or the other. And you're either going to go in as too much or as not enough, and that's not necessary. You're capable of going in as just the right amount. Then be mindful that everything that happens in the meeting is going to present itself to you as an array of emotions from sad to happy and everything in between. And you're going to have to choose one in real time. And so I think that the decision you make going in is that you're just going to choose to be in the middle. Just be mindful that the road you want to take during that conference is the middle lane. And discipline yourself to stay there no matter what happens in the discussion. And then if you need to revisit things that you learned during that meeting, you can do it when you're prepared to do it at another time. That's very well said. I I think the only thing I'll add is just a little bit of reiteration along the envy front. Mm -hmm. You are doing the best you can with what you have, where you are. You are a good enough parent. You're not perfect, but you're not. It's instead of looking around and saying, I'm doing this well, but that person's doing it better and that person's doing it even better. I could be doing that. Just acknowledging that you are the person that your child needs as that parent. And then to take that a step further, I think sometimes fours as parents might end up inadvertently shortchanging their own kiddos absolutely, because of that same envious line of thinking. My kid does some stuff well, but they don't do things as well as that kid or that kid or that kid. And because I'm not doing a good enough job as a parent, then my kid is losing out because of Mm. so on and so on and so on and so on. They're the same as you in that they're just trying to do the best they can with what they have where they are. And so being mindful of that thought process and those kinds of feelings, and I love what you said about just staying in the middle lane in order to just objectively have that encounter Mm -hmm. and deal with it from there. And I think you can give yourself permission to say to the teacher, and I think this would be a good idea, after she finishes, finish three sentences. Well, this is what I think. This is how I feel about my child and my child's relationship with you. And this is what I'm planning to do. Do you have anything to add to that? So that you've 
you've really got a way of managing everything that's happening really fast emotionally. Fives, two things, and then Billy, you take it from there. First of all, don't be cynical and don't be sarcastic. And when you get nervous or feel like you're being misjudged or you're uncomfortable, those are two automatic responses. They'll be very ineffective. And fives tend to think that they can name cynicism and sarcasm as humor and that other people will think it's funny. And I assure you, your child's teacher in a teacher conference will not. So don't do that. And the second thing is you manage your fear by gathering knowledge. That's a great thing. Gather all you can. It's a fact-finding mission for you to meet with your child's teacher, and that's a comfort space for you in those kinds of interactions. So you, you use that gift and gather information. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. You, you are maybe the best. You're one of the three best at gathering information, being in a thinking triad. Take it all in there and be as gifted at objectivity as you are. And in my opinion, I think it's very helpful to go in with lots of questions. You have information by asking questions. You're gathering more information in real time. And I think it's important and, and necessary to be honest with the, with the teacher whom you're engaging. After you've asked the question and received the answer, just being open and honest and saying, I don't, I'm going to need some time to process this. I don't necessarily have, you know, a well thought out response to all this, but I've taken notes. I'd like to go back and kind of process through all this in my own time. And I'd like to kind of come back and follow up um, in order for us to make sure that we're on the same page instead of trying to make something up on the fly. That's right. Because you're not good at it and you're, you're not, you're not comfortable with it. And it will be unproductive and it could lead to, to negative things. And so just being open about that process, I think, is important. And I think that's something that fives don't always do. They do it anyway, but they don't let the other party know no, what's that's happening. What that's there's right. just some silence. So when there's silence, everybody kind of makes up Gets what un- they yeah. think. Yeah. But if you just say, thank you so much. I've got this information. I need time to process this. Process this. I'll get back with you. I think anybody would say that's totally fine. I agree. And this this part, nobody's going to like, not the teacher and not the parent. But when you get back to them, you need to do it face-to-face, not with email. And you can do it in 10 minutes, but don't use email. The other thing I would say is that one of the great gifts of fives is that they're the only number that's capable of neutrality. This is not a place to be neutral. (laughs) You're going to have to land for your kid, and you're going to have to land... Where you do. So no neutrality. Lovely gift, not for this scene. All right, sixes. It's well known that I think there are more sixes than other numbers. And I also think lots of teachers are sixes. And I think that's a gift. I'm going to make a very bold statement. And then, Billy, you take it. And if you have to clean it up, do it. Nobody knows your child like you do. And every child needs an advocate. And you cannot be a good advocate for your child if you don't trust yourself and your own knowledge. So you're going to have to really own that you know yourself and you know what you know about your child and you're there to ask lots of questions And you'll get lots of good answers. And I would encourage you to write them down. Yeah. What I was going to say is similar to fives, because it's a comfort level um, for sixes to sort of assuage the fears that are naturally there and to um, gather confidence in the authority, which in this case is your child's teacher. Um, asking lots of questions to additionally gather more information. And then the other thing I was going to say is before you get answers to those questions, when you're by yourself writing down what you honestly think is happening and how you honestly feel about what's going on, and then having the courage to state that in that meeting. No matter what. 
Right. No matter what. Yeah. So you're gathering more information, which is helpful because you need it in order to make an informed decision in the future. But then before you gather that, because if you do it after, then it's going to change. It's going to fluctuate. You ask a question, they give you an answer. Well, now my thinking's changed. If you write it down beforehand, going into the meeting and then sticking to it, you're having an honest conversation with the teacher. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I want to, I do have one more thing I want to say about that. And that is, uh, if you are more counterphobic than phobic, and if you're extremely counterphobic, don't go in to take the teacher down. Don't go in with the idea that this teacher is misusing authority and misusing power and that you need to create space for your child. You need to go in and listen if you're counterphobic before you do anything, get the whole picture. All right, Joel, you've been awfully quiet. The thing that I always have to be sure to remember is that if, you know, if we're there kind of, we're talking about like, this isn't your kids doing phenomenal and is the next president conversation with the teacher. So there (laughs) is an issue. And we always say about sevens. First step is acknowledging that something's wrong. Part two is I need to have a real open mind going into it. If I I'm prone to duality as well. And if I go in with that, that's not gonna, it's not gonna be great. Not, not a lot's going to be accomplished. The last part is I've got to remember that the the solution isn't as easy as I think it's going to be. I'm quick to say, if this is the deal, then here's a fix. If this is the problem, here's the fix. And one, I'm not at the school. So if it's something that's happening at the school, I can't make the solution. I'm not there. And if it's something on a deeper level, that it's, it's probably not a, a quick fix. I would add to that that I think sevens have to be very mindful that a lot of what happens when you're working with children is illogical. And I think uh, another way to talk about a quick fix is that you deal in logic. It, it's like your thing. That's illogical. <laughs> well, that's that doesn't make any sense. And not lots of things that happen with kids don't make sense. And so I think you can't use that as the way you dismiss what's happening. And there's, if you, when I use logic, I miss what could be an issue that is under the behavior. If I'm looking to correct behavior, especially when I'm walking through with the kid, if the kid, if my child, yeah, I understand that. You understand that at the end, something is still off. I miss the, what's the real issue here? Right. Yeah, a couple of things I would add. That's a great point. It's going to involve typically some digging. There's a problem. It No problem just kind of crops up out of nowhere. It usually kind of builds. So there's an underlying issue there. And so that digging that's required to get to the bottom of it is going to involve some acknowledgement of feelings and some getting into some pain. And that's not that's not very fun for a seven as a parent. And I think the another thing that's important to note is if you go in, you have a good conversation with a teacher, the teacher expresses some things, you express some things, you walk out with an understanding, that's awesome. It's going to take consistency on the back end and lots of follow-up in order to change a behavior or go down a new path. And that takes a single-pointed focus. Like, and, and it's just, and sometimes it's it can be monotonous and it can be boring. And it can take a long time. And, and I it cannot make sense to you, the seven. Right. But I think it, it, I think a seven might say, well, we had the conversation. We talked about the problem. We addressed what the solution is. Why do we need to talk about it again? Right. Why, why in the world would we want to revisit that? That sounds right. terrible. Go on. <laughs> and it's because if it's been a slow build, which it usually is, mm-hmm. if we're talking about a child's behavior, now it's to a point where we've all acknowledged there's an issue. It's going to take equally as long on the back end to negate the negative with a series of positive or a series of effective, right? And so it's going to take you having to have the same conversation over and over maybe, or to assign a consequence to your child for, for engaging in whatever the non-desired behavior was on the front end. And that all sounds awful. 
please feel free to say, oh, no, you missed the boat there. <laughs> I think whenever possible, all parents should go. And I'm not sure you, and, and by all parents, I mean, some children have four parents, some people. Sure. And I know with a, a single parent, there's often a grandparent who helps or because I, when Joe and I used to go to teacher meetings, we never heard the same things. And when your way of hearing, which is you can't do anything about it, that's your Enneagram number. But boy, does it help to have somebody else hearing that too. And I can see how four parents would be problematic, especially if the parents don't get along with one another and don't agree and all that. So could you just speak to that? Because if that's a bad thing, then everybody needs to hear that. I don't think it's a bad thing. And I, I, I think that the more perspectives and the more feedback that a child's education has, the better chance of there is for it to be be what it needs to be for that specific child. What you said is is right on. If if I as a nine and Joey as an eight, we go together to the parent conference, she's going to hear things differently. She's going to say things differently. And the teacher is going to hear things differently from each of us. And I think when everybody presents as a united front, that's only going to help the child. And I'll only say a couple more quick things that are true for all of the numbers. Just talking about the home to school interaction. I think if... If everybody kind of checks their ego or their personality at the door, you go in with an open mind, which you said, Joel, which is extremely important for all nine numbers and on the part of the teacher as well, then you'll end up listening more, talking less. If you go in with a plan, meaning this is what I think and this is how I feel, and then you honestly and appropriately express it and then let the teacher do the same, because I think we all forget we have an idea of what's happening at school all day, every day, but we're not there. And ultimately what we think is becomes our reality and it might be wrong. And so you're, there's just, you're just wallowing in this misunderstanding when if you'll just kind of operate with that plan, go in with the plan, ask questions, be honest and be open-minded. Then the chances of you, no matter what Enneagram number you are of having an effective conversation for the benefit of your kid goes up exponentially. And my last point is it's not about you. It's about your child. Right. Okay, one last question. What is an appropriate age for people to learn their number? A lot of people want to include their teenagers anywhere from 13 to 18 in Enneagram Journey curriculum groups. That's a question that we get sent a lot. My answer's changed a little bit. 18 is the appropriate age, and I am sticking with that to learn your number or to be part of an Enneagram journey group because prior to 18 every human is heavily influenced by their peers and their answers then to the questions that help them figure out their number or what they listen for is intuitively and organically influenced by their peers even if they're not in the room i think People are maturing more quickly, and I could go with 16, but because they're still in high school, that's tricky for me. I really believe it's 18. I have uh, listened, Billy, to you and Joey a lot, and you two have convinced me that there is an age range younger than that where you can pretty much know what stance your children are in. And so I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about that. Yeah, and I think that um, identifying a stance is important because um, you can offer your kiddos who are in a particular stance some things that are helpful for them as their growth along um, their Enneagram journey and just at, in growing up. And I think it, it can be difficult to delineate the numbers within the stance because the behaviors might be similar and it's, it's because of what you said and it, it, who knows what age range you can start identifying that it's different for all people. But I do find that there's a lot of value in attempting to identify that stance and then operating accordingly without running a great risk of misidentifying in the long run, which could muddy the waters of course. 
And I just think you stay open to the fact that, uh-oh, I thought that, and now they're getting a little older, and now I think this. And I think that the the purest time to not be influenced is 18 to 20. There's an independence there that you kind of know who you are and how you're going to do life, and it's not being influenced by anybody else. And I think that's a really great time. And I would say about stances, just, you know, one one thing you do is you just go ahead and explore verbally with your children. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? And I, 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 you and Joey have convinced me that that's a, a good path to take. So one thing that's being modeled right here, right now, is that I've listened to two people who I've taught the Enneagram to for years, and you disagree with me, and I think you're right. I think you're right. What do you do when you've got sweet little 16-year-old Emily walks in and says, hey, I want to I go with you. I want to learn about this. Because then it's not you putting it on them, but them taking that initiative. Well, there are no shortcuts, so I'm opposed to the test. And I think the road back to you is as good a primer as there is for the Enneagram. And I know that sounds self-serving, but a 16-year-old can certainly handle all the information in the road back to you and independently reading and thinking make that decision for themselves, which would be better than putting them in a group situation. I want to say one last thing. I think the best way to work with other folks and for help working with parents and the best way to uh, use the Enneagram in relationship to children is with the mix that we were able to bring today. I, I feel really great about these conversations. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise.